Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Oksanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Okasanya. Hello and welcome to Retirementals. It's great to have you all on the podcast today. Uh, my guest today is Ed Moisen, who is the associate editor at Ignite Europe, an FT publication, and the author of a new, dare I say, fascinating book, <laughs> The Economics of Fund Management. And I say that with all due respect, the title does sound like uh, an academic type uh, reading, but actually it's a powerful, insightful book into the inner workings of, of asset management or the business of asset management. So, Ed, welcome to Retirementals. Thanks very much for having me, Abraham. So, Ed, I, 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 I met you a couple of years ago. It must have been, I don't know, seven, eight years ago at a conference. Um, but for, uh, you know, and I've followed your work and your writing since, since then. For the purpose of uh, our audience, who are mostly financial advisors, who may not be familiar with, with, with your work, uh, give us a little bit of an insight into your career and how you've uh, come to write this book. Right. Okay. Um, I, I started out at the industry uh, over 20 years ago, I guess, uh, working at a little research company. Uh, and the company did research into fund charges, which I guess is a pretty unusual starting point in the industry to start to start there. But that's what, that was the starting point. And then I, I stayed in research for quite a few years, expanding from fund charges, which obviously quite niche, into understanding the industry as a whole and uh, doing work on that. The company I worked at was bought by uh, Lippa, which is, was at the time part of Thomson Reuters. Um, and then... Uh, so I was there quite a few years, and then I spent a couple of years at an asset manager as well. I took the uh, I took took the step to work within a fund management company, um, which was interesting. It wasn't, yeah, wasn't uh, I, I wasn't best suited to working inside a fund management company. I think that's the way of putting it. So uh, I sort of um, yeah had a bit of a rethink, and, and it was then that I moved into journalism, which was about seven years ago. Um, and yeah, I, I moved to work at Ignites Europe, which, as you say, is part of the FT Group. And uh, yeah, we write about the asset management industry. Um, yeah, at you know, we write for asset managers about asset managers and other groups that get involved in what they do. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's so fascinating uh, stuff. So you you've covered the asset management industry as as a journalist, uh, you know, for for nearly a decade. Why, why did you decide to write the book? What's the thinking behind behind that? Yeah, I guess at a personal level, as a journalist, I'm writing on a daily news service. So it's a pretty constant find a story, file a story, what's your next story kind of thing. So it's pretty relentless slog. So I, I wanted to sort of take a step back and to have a chance about, you know, to pull together different thoughts I'd had about the industry through the course of the career so that on a personal level it was that to write a book is that opportunity to to have a slightly more long-term view and as for the subject matter that's I guess more I think the vast majority of writing and research on the uh, fund industry is to do with investing not not surprisingly 
is mm. what if what do fund managers do? How, how do they invest, and how you know maybe what tips they might have for other people to invest? And I thought, whilst you know the vast majority of research is done in that area, maybe there's just a little bit of a niche to cover all the rest of what the, what how an asset management business works, what it does, and for a lot of times why the rest of the stuff actually you know matters quite a lot for how a fund management company makes money um, and engages with the rest of the world. Uh, I think p- partly um, in terms of, yeah, how an asset management as a company makes business, makes money, but also increasingly how it's, uh, you know, the sort of the, almost a philosophical underpinning of w- what it is doing. I think partly with the rise of environmental, social and governance investing, people are looking at investing in different ways now. And I think that fits into the part of the broader purpose of fund management. And so that's part of what I touch on in the book as well. Yeah. Yeah. As you know, as a as a critic of the asset management industry, uh, I and and a professional working sort of in in the adjacent, if you like, of that industry, I I do find, you know, I mean, the book really insightful in terms of understanding the business, you know, the revenue model, the ownership model uh, of, of, of asset management businesses. So let's dive into the book, right? So talk to us about the size of the asset management industry today, which is something that you covered in the book, and then maybe we can globally, and then maybe we can kind of talk a little bit about the size in, in Europe and, and in the UK. Yeah, so I, I think the the best sort of ballpark figure globally for the industry, it's sort of it's when you ex, expand it to include hedge fund strategies, fund management to include hedge fund strategies, and you know as wide a, a universe as you can think of, it's it's you know the estimates put it at around a hundred to hundred trillion dollars of assets under management wow. in financial assets. So it is it is vast. Yeah. Now, obviously, I sit in London. And I cover the European industry, and so I'm conscious that an awful lot of that money is is in the United States, and I, th- I think that's partly what I also try and draw on in the book is to give a perspective on what happens in Europe and the UK, which is probably slightly different from what's happening in the way that the US industry is involved. Um, but yeah, that, that's at a global level. That's it's, it is a vast industry. The, the Europe, uh, off the top of my head, I can't, I can't remember how how big the European industry is. But its relative size is 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 much much smaller. So when generally when people look at global figures on the industry, that is always going to be pretty skewed by what's happening in the in the USA. Yeah. Yeah, and then you you made the point about the UK market. Um, you know this 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 chart I find fascinating, and I posted this on 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 uh, um, Twitter about the gross versus sort of net inflows of in, into UK mutual fund uh, sector, and the figure is like there is two hundred and thirty three two two hundred and twenty three billion, um, you know, a year now going into the fund. Uh, industry uh, at, at a gross level, and the net sales actually about ten percent of that. So ninety percent of the sales 
um, is either covering redemptions, which includes obviously withdrawals, uh, you know, for people in retirement, but also uh, funds just shoving themselves about, right? Sell from one funds and then reinvest into the other. Only 10% of the inflow is, is actually new money. Is that alarmist or, or is, should, is that worrying or am I just uh, taking this completely out of context? No, I, I think you. I think you're right, and I think this is one of the challenges from an asset manager's perspective. That's one of the challenges is why they put a, such a big emphasis on sales. Is they know a lot of money is going out of the door, so that it's a it's a constant battle for them to be getting more money coming in through the front door to to, to cover those redemptions. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think the UK. I mean, yeah, I don't think the UK is. Those are UK figures. I don't think that's unusual in that in that respect. That. Um, yeah, uh, there's a there's a lot of money which is, as you say, people are either drawing it down to, for their retirement or um, or people switching into different uh, if in, into different products. Um, yeah, it's it's um, and also I think the um, actually the UK compares fairly well compared to the rest of Europe in terms of the way that new products are sold. So a lot of the uh, flows often are going to be moving into new fund launches. You know, often there's a lot of marketing hype around the new fund launch. And that's actually, you find that's even more pronounced in continental Europe than uh, in the UK. In the UK, it tends to be more based on a performance track record. Um, right. So so you get less uh, turnover. But, um, but yeah, absolutely. That's... Um, and we see that elsewhere in the book as well, that um, I picked up on some figures from the Investment Association where they show that the holding period of, of for funds has fallen over the past 20 years. And I think that's then that that sort of trend of, of the decline in holding periods is reflected in these sales figures as well, that people are holding on to funds for shorter periods of time. I do also think part of that has come. Um, it's something I'd looked at. A couple of years ago, so I mean, I would assume it's still the case that interestingly, on the back of the retail distribution review, uh, with more money focused into fewer hands of sort of gatekeepers and model portfolios, when they mm. move money, it adds volatility to the you know big chunks of money moving at uh, specific times does add to more sort of volatility in sales that asset managers are also facing. So I think that plays through into the figures that you picked up on as well. Fascinating stuff. One, one thing I was trying to understand um, in the book is you made this distinction between, uh, you know, mutual fund structures um, and institutional mandates and, and their relative sizes. Can you shed a little bit of light, um, you know, especially to, to those of us on, you know, if you like the retail side, uh, in, in terms of how the institute, how, how things compare in terms of size and the way these institutional mandates work. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I have to say, I've spent most of my life working in the in the in the funds bit of the world. So, in fact, that was something which was quite enjoyable for me to sort of dig, try and see what figures are available. Because I, I think that is one of the big pluses of the mutual fund is that, that in principle, it's pretty transparent. You can see what's going on most of the time. Um, yeah. Mandates because so with a mandate, what you're doing rather than a, a mutual fund, a pool fund where retail investors or financial advisors can be moving money in and out normally on a daily basis, 
a mandate is an agreement. So it's not there's not a sort of a shared structure. It's an agreement specifically between one generally institutional client and an asset manager to manage a pool of money uh, on the on the institution's behalf. Uh, and so that's a, a one on one contract in the, you know, most cases. And, and, and the terms of that contract are agreed between the two parties. So whereas you have a sort of a communal, um, a communal structure for the mutual fund, it's much more of a yeah, contractual basis uh, between two large businesses when we're looking at mandates. And but I, I mean, why I think it's important to bear those in mind, the mandates in mind, particularly in the UK, where estimates suggest that the, that the size of the institutional mandate industry is, is considerably bigger uh than than uk mutual funds um so um yeah i, I don't know it's it's maybe off the top of my head something like a third bigger in mandates than in mutual funds I, I think one thing that is worth noting though is that whereas generally and also the way i've t- spoken about it here people tend to think of mandates as to do with institutions and mutual funds to do with retail investors and their financial advisors I think those lines have been become slightly more blurry over recent years. I, I think right. more institutions are happy to use um, mutual funds if they can get uh, a fee level which which they find acceptable. And for a smaller institutional investor, maybe sometimes that's a way to get access to a particular fund manager, which they wouldn't do. Uh, they might not be able to to have that set up uh, directly with. An asset manager on an institutional mandate basis and similarly we have seen some wealth managers begin to use mandates on the sort of the reverse of that so wealth managers using mandates it's still that that for me my impression is that's still pretty small but uh mm. we have seen some movement on there and generally again that comes through the size of money that they have to invest with a particular manager if they can get a, a fee rate which they find you know is more in their investors' interests, but um, yeah, fascinating stuff. So, so, so you you said earlier that the, the global size of the um, you know investment management industry is something in the region of hundred trillion, and about half of that, fifty one, um, according to your book, is in funds. The the thing again, you had this table one point one. It's a very it's a fascinating table um, in there where you said the U U the U S accounts for something like twenty three trillion of um, you know of funds mutual funds, which is about roughly speaking um, about half of the assets in 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 mutual funds, but they only have 10% of the number of funds. Whereas over here in Europe, we have 17 trillion, which again accounts for about 45% of the AUM, but (laughs) we have 57,000 funds, a third of the total funds in the industry. Why? Why do we need that many funds uh, with with far less assets uh, compared to the US, for instance? Yeah, I think the I think the answer is we don't. We uh, 
yeah, no, it, it's it's a it's a very good point, Abraham. Yeah, we we just don't. Um, I, I think uh, clearly, the, 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 I suppose it's worth pointing out. Uh, I'm sure your listeners will, will be well aware the U.S. is one country, Europe is multiple markets. So right, it's a, right, it's right. so uh, it's a maybe it's a slightly unfair comparison to be saying that um, that Europe has has so many more funds when underneath. Obviously, you've got multiple markets working in multiple ways. I think why it is a fair comparison, though, is that uh, obviously the UK has left the EU now. But even so, underpinning a lot of fund regulation is EU-based regulation Correct. based around USITS rules, undertakings for collective investment in transfer, transferable securities, which lets you sell, in principle, a mutual fund that beats EU regulations around Europe. And so mm. there is there is a fund structure which would enable you to create a single European market, which which very much does exist. That hasn't stopped uh, asset managers from building uh, locally based funds for those local investors, and it's that I think that that is one reason why you get those that 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 massive replication of funds. In addition to which, in in amongst here is you know a, a bunch of funds which you know loads of funds which are set up. For relatively small numbers of clients in the first place, and so you get, um, yeah, you you do get uh, a lot of funds which are set up for relatively small numbers of clients, and and therefore, uh, and, and it's maybe not a, a retail mutual fund as you and I would tend to think of it. But you know, I guess most of what I've just said is is one massive caveat. The underlying point, though, is still even if you were, you know, if I sat here and s- spent ages stripping out these you know, extraneous funds as well, you still have this situation where on average, the, the average fund size in the US is far bigger than what you have in the UK or Europe. And, and sometimes that's, um, that could be good for investors. I, I certainly know that active fund managers say that if your fund gets too big, that's not as easy to manage and therefore is not good as good in terms of delivering performance for your clients. But, you know, in, as far as, uh, the industry as a whole is concerned, having loads and loads of subscale, you know, i.e. tiddly tiny funds uh, is no good for a client because the, the costs just go through the roof. There's still a lot of asset managers managing small funds that, uh, that are not as good at keeping the costs under control because costs are often charged uh, at a sort of a simplified level. If you have a £5,000 audit fee, for example, which you charge right. to your fund, and your fund is only ten million in size, then that's mm. a relatively high percentage, and that, and that's you know it's the end client that gets hit by that. So that's um, yeah, so, and, and, the, and there's still tons of those funds around, and uh, yeah, it's 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 not good for retail clients, and it's yeah for me it's not good for the for the health of the industry as a whole. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know to what extent these numbers are capturing. Um, you know, share classes, for instance, you know, because, right, they're not. No. Right. So, so, so these are actually <laughs> unique forms. Yeah. See, it's, it's even worse, right, than I thought. Because yeah, yeah. I thought, like, if you had a, if you had a, a fund based in um, Luxembourg, for instance, or Ireland, which many of the funds are, and you have, you know, um, UK share classes uh, and Sterling share classes 
and um, European share classes, and then you have you know, so you have currencies, and then you have maybe accumulation, decumulation, maybe some pre preferential, uh, you know, institutional share classes, if you like. Maybe that explains some of this disparity, but it was you 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 say that actually it doesn't capture share classes. We're talking about unique funds, and that, to my mind, explain in part why. Um, you know, we'll come back to it, uh, you know, costs are relatively higher in the UK compared to, say, a UK, Europe, compared to, uh, the, you know, America, for instance. Yeah, it's, it's certainly one of the contributing factors. And no, it's a, it's a fair point on share classes, but no, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was something I did, yeah, I looked at. My Excel spreadsheets began to melt when I tried <laughs> to include... Well, all of the uh, the all of the share classes. So no, absolutely, this this is just based on individual funds. And and I think you're absolutely right. It's not the only factor, but it's certainly a factor in in explaining higher average cost levels in, in, in comparing the US to to Europe. Yeah, absolutely. Incredible stuff. Uh, the other thing I find quite fascinating is uh, the ownership structure of. Uh, the asset management industry. So um, again, in, in the book, you I, I kind of listed four or five different. I picked four or five different types of ownership structure uh, of 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 uh, asset managers. Can you talk a little bit about about that? And again, if you want me to uh, aid you with my list, then I can do that. Uh, yeah. Well, um, well, I, I suppose. I mean, why don't you nudge me as we go along? I think the, the main one, particularly once we're looking, what well, applies to the UK as well. The main one, I think, is whether your asset manager is an independent firm or whether it's owned by a part of a larger financial services business. So mm. an independent asset manager would be the likes, well, the most obvious one is BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager. That's a standalone company. What, you know, you also do have asset managers that are part of big banks, HSBC, uh, once we look at a European level, the likes of UBS and Credit Suisse, uh, they're Swiss, big Swiss banks with massive asset management operations as well. In Germany, DWS, in France, Amundi. These are some of Europe's largest asset managers and they're part or majority owned by, by banks. And that, I think why it's worth bearing in mind is that, that therefore, um, one of the issues that I try and deal with in the book is the potential tensions when a business is trying to grow between its uh, fund investors, its sort of, yeah, its, its clients and its shareholders. Now, obviously, if you're an independent asset manager, you, you, you could be privately owned. Uh, and, and so I guess your, share, your shareholders might be the, effectively the partners of the business. But I think you have a different perspective if, if that's your position than if you are publicly listed. So BlackRock is listed in, in New York. Schroders, Aberdeen, invested, uh, listed in the UK, or the other asset managers I, I mentioned um, in, in Europe are listed on their domestic stock exchanges as well. And that means that they have uh, two sets, in broad terms, of interested parties in how the business does. They have people that are invested in their funds, and they have people that are invested in them as a business. And I think that does create potential conflicts of interest in an asset management business. I'm at a, a very basic level, if I'm an asset manager and I'm trying to keep my shareholders happy, instinctively, I would want to raise my fees so that I make more money and keep the shareholders happy. But if I'm trying to keep my fund investor happy, what I would instinctively want to do is to lower the fees 
because that boosts returns for your clients. Um, now, obviously, I'm sure all of your listeners will be now shouting at the podcast saying, come on, Ed, there are other factors involved. Well, clearly, they are. I, and it's, it's not, it's not uh, the only factors uh, there, but, but the, it creates the potential for attention within the business. And that's why I think the, the ownership structures of these businesses is is, yeah, absolutely, is relevant and uh, worth bearing in mind. When yeah, I mean, the, the least I drew is, yes, you know, the listed um, entities, or let's call them directly listed entities like BlackRock. Then you have the private entities. You know, it, it still boggles the mind to think that uh, as large asset managers like, um, you know, Fidelity, uh, uniquely, I mean, you know, uniquely, but you know, fidelity, um, you know, dimensional. They are they are owned by private. They're, they're private companies, and and therefore um, they're, they're they're not listed. Um, then you have this hybrid model in my mind, like the likes of um, Schroders, where although you know uh, the company is listed, forty percent of of the ownership still lies with the with the Schroeder family. Uh, and then you have Vanguard, Uniquely, uh, Mutual, where the fund, uh, the, the fund, suddenly the US uh, funds own, um, you know, the, 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 the actual company, uh, the, the investment manager. Uh, so, so that's kind of how I, I thought about the different structure. And then you have the old core, the old in core structure. So you have the likes of which you talk about, again, these are all from your book, <laughs> you know, where you talked about the likes of, is it called um, affiliated managers group, which basically takes stakes in, uh, you know, uh, asset management firms, small asset management firms, and, and leave, leaves them, um, you know, to try and run under their own brand and, uh, you know, a, a degree of ownership for the for the people who run in the business. So, I, I guess to my mind, do we have any evidence that one ownership model is better for investors or significantly detrimental? Um, you know, to to investors. Um, I've not seen research. No, that's you come up with the tough questions, don't you? Um, I, I've not seen research to show clear evidence of that. Years ago, I remember back in my research days, I did look at um, the relative performance of funds by by different business owners, and what what I saw at the time was that generally firms which were independent. Tend with their funds tended to take more risk. You get more volatility in the returns, and so the funds' performance either used to be uh, very good, relatively, or so they would either be sort of first quartile or bottom quartile. Whereas firms which are owned by banks or insur insurers tended to be a little more risk reverse, and so they would their their performance would tend to cluster around the middle. Um, yeah. I mean that was that was research I did years ago i mean quite possibly some academics have done more robust things i've not seen conclusive evidence to say as to which model is better or not although you know i what i would say is that instinctively as i think with any business if it is owned by the you know if it is owned and run by the 
by the same people, I, I can't help thinking that helps them to have a long-term view and running a business as, you know, as with when you're investing, being able to take a long-term view, I think is hugely beneficial that you're not chasing short-term results. You're not worrying about what someone's going to be telling you at your next quarterly meeting. Um, yeah, that those, it creates, certainly creates different pressures uh, and a different perspective on the way that you're managing a business. Yeah. I mean, what we do know is that model like Vanguard's, which is unique uh, in the sector, at least goes a long way to address this conflict as far as fees are concerned uh, between the, the, the investor and the shareholders. And one would argue that the likes of BlackRock um, haven't done a terrible job um, as far as that's concerned. I can't help think that I would like to see the research that especially um, firms that are owned, asset managers that are owned by banks and, uh, you know, where, or entities with distribution, you know, some relationship with the, the direct end investors, um, will be very, very reluctant to, um, you know, push costs down because they own the distribution, they have relationship with the clients and they're not as worried about uh, competition as, 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 you know, firms that are maybe publicly listed or directly competing fairly for assets in the market. But that's, that's just speculation on, on my part. Mm. Um, and, and added to that, no, I think it's an interesting point though, because added to that, you do see asset managers at the moment looking to in simplified terms, by distribution, where an asset manager might be looking to invest in a robo-advisor on the hope right. that maybe that'll bring in assets over time, or setting up a wealth management relationship. You see that with Schroders and um, yes. Scottish right. Widows, um, uh, sorry, with Lloyds. Um, yeah, those, those, so, so asset managers are certainly very well aware that the ability to control distribution can be, yeah, absolutely, can be very powerful in in securing flows and obviously that then improves their bottom line that's um no i i think that's it's certainly a dynamic which is yeah it's it's worth uh looking at and i, I think yeah i think often people often people don't it's 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 often something which which don't uh, people consider and, and and i'm sure to that extent it's been you know a powerful marketing tool for vanguard as you sort of hint at their ownership model in europe is a little bit different but, uh, you know, it's, a, it's always been a pretty powerful uh, uh, way of presenting themselves as, as trying to align the interests of their clients uh, with their owners because they're one of the same people in the States. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the um, one interesting thing you covered in the book is about revenue and profitability of asset managers. And you make the point that the asset management business, as we know, is incredibly uh, profitable. The, the one thing I struggle to get my head around, you had this table, table 3.3, where you put the net revenue um, as a percentage of AUM <laughs> uh, of asset managers to something like 26 basis points for, for the UK, about 33 basis points for Europe, 
and 23 for the U.S. The thing that jumps at me there is why is the uh, fee, right, revenue, which is my, my revenue as a, as a percentage of AUM is essentially an indication of the fees that they're getting. If the typical asset uh, active funds, uh, sadly, as we know it in the UK, in the region of 80, 90 basis points, how come the net revenue is 26 basis points? Obviously, there is the implication of, you know, passive versus active there. Maybe there is some implication about, or, of, um, you know, this institutional or, or this mandate type thing, the institutional mandate versus funds in the equation. But my question is, why is the net revenue as a percentage of AUM so low relative to what we think of um, as, as the fees that asset management businesses charge? Yeah, I... <laughs> I, 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 can't, I can't remember writing the flipping thing. That, no, that, that, that's fine. I, I was thinking that it has something to do with, to an extent, you know, obviously active funds will be in the region of 80 basis point, but passive will be, say, 10, 20 basis point. And then there are all these institutional mandates where, I mean, we saw this with the likes of SJP, actually, where the actual the actual money or fee that the SJP, SJP is paying to asset managers is actually in the 30 basis point mark and they mark it up and charge uh, a, a much higher fee. And then you have all these institutional mandates that are maybe paying five, 10 basis point uh, be, because of the share size and volume. And my, my thinking is just that the end investor, the retail investor, is put at a significant disadvantage compared to, um, you know, compared to institutional uh, type uh, investor. Is that your sen sentiment or do you disagree with my speculation? No, no, that's absolutely right. Uh, yeah, clearly the, the two main uh, the two main reasons why we're going to see lower fee levels uh, is, is the, than you might expect is, is exactly is the importance of passive and the importance of institutional clients. My hesitancy, I suppose, is I'm not entirely convinced that that's the only reason for specifically for these figures. And I wouldn't want to sort of say that covers everything because I have a feeling the the, the, the consultancy firms that were putting these figures together are probably doing something more than that. But you're absolutely right. In principle, when you and I might think about 80 basis points, that's, that's very much a, a, a standard. And obviously, that's going to be an actively managed fund for uh, for a retail investor, um, obviously without trail permission. Um, but but that absolutely doesn't reflect the, the, the impact you would get if you're then layering in um, the impact of reduced costs through passive funds, which increasingly important, particularly in the States, that's going to have a bigger impact in the States, or for institutional clients. So absolutely, if we're then going to include if the analysts have included mandates within this, then that's obviously going to have a big impact as well as to in terms of revenue, because their mandates are going to be on institutional fee levels, i.e. very much lower than what you get for the standard retail class. All I would say is that um, I, I think passive must be having a significant impact there, 
because increasingly the uh, a sort of a standard institutional fee rate, okay, not maybe for all institutional clients, obviously the more money you're able to invest, the lower your fees are going to go. But the standard institutional fee rates are often, you know, those you can find in a particular share class on a mutual fund. Um, that's not to say there aren't discounts and so on going on, but compared to pre-RDR, when you'd automatically see a massive difference in those in those fee levels between a retail share class, including trail commission, compared to an institutional share class, which doesn't have trail commission and, and probably was a bit lower than that anyway, you know that 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 divergence obviously has has um, has massively um, tightened. Yeah, absolutely. And so that I guess then is also then playing through to these figures. But um, but yeah, the, the yeah absolutely the institutional fee, fee rights are definitely going to be much much lower and institutional clients buy passives too so you're yeah so you're you're going to be getting a, a sort of a, a an increased effect there yeah the the one thing that actually also fascinates me from from that part of the the the, the report uh, sorry the the book is that it costs 17 basis sorry 19 basis points in the uk cost 19 basis points uh thereabout to run uh, you know, an asset management business. In this case, most of them actively managed. Um, and that even regardless of, as you pointed out in the book, the very high salaries uh, I pay in the sector, um, you know, and, you know, the, the big marketing costs and, you know, distribution uh, budgets that they have, in spite of all that, it only costs 19 basis points to, to run an asset management business. And then they end up with a profit margin of 30, 40 percent um, in many cases. So the point is, how far do you think price, sadly thinking about Mr. and Mrs. Miggins, um, the retail fund, how much room do, do we have for prices to come down? Um, and, and and still leaving an healthy margin um, for for the for for the asset management businesses. Yeah, I mean, I said, I mean, asset managers um, would be quick to point out that I mean they've been coming under cost pressure as well. You know, it's um, that these figures we see here absolutely still very healthy, but that's that's been under pressure. I think what uh, what they might have expected a few years ago, having a big a bigger uh, book of actively managed funds uh, would have helped their profit margins more. So that's that's been that has been coming down a bit. Uh, is there room for that to come down further on uh, fees? Oh yeah, well yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, how much how much further can it come down? It's tricky. Um, obviously, most of the cost competition or the cost changes we've seen in the UK have been either the stripping out of trail commission over the past, whatever it is now, uh, well, yeah, it's almost 10 years. RDR flies by, doesn't it? O almost 10 years, plus then the growth of passives. As passive funds get bigger, uh, they'd be able to reduce their costs more. And that's obviously where we get most uh, uh, willingness among asset managers to reduce their fees is on the passive side. Um, and you mentioned Vanguard before. C clearly, they're a good example of a firm that's, that's you know, generally pretty quick 
when their assets rise for them to lower their fees if they can, because for them, that's uh, that's part of the way that they present their business. But they're not alone. You know, other asset managers on the passive side are very well aware that in passive, cost is a, is a big factor in, not the only factor, but a big factor in why someone might select a certain fund. And so the other players in the market, like BlackRock, as we've mentioned, yeah, and and this is a a good place to 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 wind up the the conversation. Uh, I, I can see my uh, editor uh, <laughs> essentially prompting me to say wrap this up. Uh, but but you know this issue of fees and the purpose of the investment management industry. You talked about the purpose of the investment management industry. Um, and then talk, you talked about um, the fact that the, 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 the asset, management, uh, asset management as a business actually ignores the law of demand and supply. And I want to give you this quote, which I picked from the book, and then I want you to defend your uh, comments about the purpose of the asset management industry. So this is a quote, uh, you were quoting Bill Gross in the book, The Bond King, and he said, we sell hope, but very few are able to seal the deal with performance anywhere close to compensating for the generous fees we command. Hope has a legitimate price, of course, even if it promises are never fulfilled. Now, you make the case in the book that, you know, the purpose of the investment management industry is to make their client wealthier. Well, here is a legend of the industry saying, actually, their job, their purpose is to sell up, and that in itself is worth every penny that they get paid, even if that hope never materializes, which is it? Are they truly, truly fulfilling the essence of making their client wealthier or are they just selling hope? Yeah, I think I, 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 I think I got the sense from Bill Gross that he was, he's being a bit more cynical than you're, than you're interpreting it myself. And part of it was when he was criticizing the industry part of the paper he was writing was criticizing the industry for the high, relatively high levels of fees which he saw. And to be honest, that was in the States, which as we know, generally, not always, but generally are gonna have a lower fee levels than over here anyway. Um, but yeah, I think the hope business, I think is partly just a reflection of the way that investing works. You can't, for the mutual funds that you and I might look at, you can't guarantee the returns that you're gonna get. So all you can do is to say, this is the service we offer, this is what our fund managers and on the passive side are trying to do. Um, and this is the fee that we're going to charge for it. Um, yeah, and I think that's the problem is when people get lulled into this idea that the hope that they're being sold is more of a promise than they would, than, 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 is, than is the reality. And I think that's also pulls into the whole issue of um, why asset management is different and why I think it's an interesting industry to be looking at when... You know, some people could say, oh, for goodness sake, Ed or Abraham, why, what's, what's it your business to be worrying about the profit margins at a company? If the fee levels you can get for your clients are low enough, then who cares how much profits they make? I think the issue comes 
because of the concept of the mutual fund itself that you're that you're you're supposed to be acting in your client's best interests and that at the heart of the industry makes it different from if i was just selling widgets or packets of pasta there's that fiduciary responsibility to be acting uh, in clients best interests and then uh, therefore the level of fees and and linked to that the level of your profitability is fundamentally important to the way that you're running the business and um yeah i i i think that's very i think it creates particular ch challenges for the industry as a result and and yeah some some interesting thinking from the likes of bill gross uh coming to that as well yeah absolutely I mean, we can certainly, in the work that we do, uh, say that we are getting, uh, you know, the, the, the best price for, for, for investors. You know, the, the typical uh, fee that we see in, in, in the portfolios that we manage is something like, you know, 10, 20, ten, eight, we have sub 10 basis point OCF. Uh, once you've added uh, the, the investment, ma your portfolio management cost, you get 20, maybe 30 if you want factor exposure. And that's to me kind of completely, um, you know, different than we're seeing, certainly in the wider industry, much, much lower than what you see in the wider industry. And I take the view that it's the companies that do create wealth, the listed entities of the world, the listed companies of the world, the, uh, you know, um, workers who go out and, and, um, and sell goods and services, they're the ones creating wealth. The purpose of the wealth management industry, as you say, is to uh, make their client wealthier by investing in, in this company. I match the client savings to uh, the demand of companies that are generating returns, you know, so so it's those companies that are creating wealth, uh, and this idea that the investment industry, you know, charges very high fee for that matching of savings to capital requirement of companies, um, and pay them, you know, charge very high fees, which they pay themselves, you know, significant amounts, uh, you know, huge amounts, and then, uh, you know, make very large profit margin. I'm not anti-profit. I am pro-profit. I'm an entrepreneur, uh, you know, a, a capitalist after all. But something just doesn't add up uh, in the in the investment management industry. And your book has been fascinating to read, to understand all this, no doubt we will see a lot more debates and conversations about it. So, um, Ed, thank you very much for your time, for your wisdom. Where can we find more about you and, and your book? And if you have any parting words for our listeners. Oh, um, you could you should be able to find the book just in time for Christmas, baby. Uh, yeah. Look online. It's 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 available in all uh, good online retailers, as far as I know. Uh, and I got you, mine from Amazon, and that's good. Okay. Are we going to get an audio, audible copy, audio copy? No, is that well? If you if you're open to freelance work, Abraham, then uh, <laughs> yes, I might uh, come knocking on your door. <laughs> Ed Boysen, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Abraham.
I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together. Thank you, thank you very much guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline Retirement Planning Software and Pytech low-cost flat fee model portfolio manager and to you our listeners thank you for your time i hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it you can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on twitter my handle is abraham on money until next time thank you and goodbye